Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. After Vladimir Putin absorbed parts of Ukraine into his Borg with but a word, Joe Biden took to the air to announce that his threatened sanctions would become his actual sanctions. So I'm going to begin to impose sanctions in response far beyond the steps we and our allies and partners implemented in 2014. And if Russia goes further with this invasion, we stand prepared to go further as with sanctions. The point about sanctions is, Is there a point to sanctions? There is a common perception that sanctions don't work. Well, I am here to tell you that sanctions don't work. What, never? Well, hardly ever. I'm going to pinafore this one, guys. Writing 20 years ago, political scientist Robert Papes noted that the general consensus in the 60s and 70s were that sanctions weren't effective. But his new research, he was writing in the 90s, showed... Also, that sanctions weren't effective. In the 20 years since Bob Pape's hot takes, China sure reigned in that Uyghur nastiness and we all dissuaded Saddam Hussein from trading oil. Okay, those are some high-profile failures. What of the present? Well, the Washington Post notes that, quote, sanctions seem to be the main, if not only, Western weapon for dealing with Russian aggression in Ukraine. And the article listed 13 times sanctions worked. That's the title of the article, 13 times that economic sanctions really worked. But I read through them. It doesn't prove the point. Of the 13, there weren't actual sanctions seven of the times, just the threat of sanctions. No, I do think the threat of sanctions works because the threat of sanctions usually counters the threat of a state action. So really, it's only a battle of trial balloons. Not too hard to puncture those. Of the six times they did supposedly work, it was because a major power had tons of leverage against a wee foe. South Africa could sanction Lesotho because South Africa totally surrounds and could basically lay siege to Lesotho. A couple of those other six really don't count as sanctions working either, by my accounting. The list of the quote-unquote sanctions that hardly ever worked was overall so unimpressive that I have to go back to the original thesis. Sanctions don't work. Hardly ever. In fact, the article that I was talking about, Do Sanctions Work? It was premised on Putin's excursion into Ukraine, But that was a 2014 article. The Putin-Ukraine grab in question was his grab of Crimea and Donbass, the Donbass region. 
Crimea has been de facto Russian since 2014 and Donbass. That's the territory that Putin just claimed for Russia again. And you ask those people in that territory if they're Russian or Ukrainian, they'd all say, oh, yeah, we're Russian. They wouldn't even say it in Ukrainian. It's not say that Putin will never be put off by economic threat, but I would just say he will. Do you want me to sing it? You don't, but I'm gonna hardly ever succumb to anything other than action. On the show today, a spiel about the verdict in the Ahmed Arbery case. But first, speak of the devil or this constellation of international devils. Moses Naim knows demagogues and autocrats. As Venezuela's minister of trade, he saw the Chavez regime kill off civic institutions in his home country. And as an executive director of the World Bank, he saw what Erdogan and Berlusconi did to their countries. His new book is The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century, Moses Naim Next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In management, we're told the three Ps are people, process, and product. Okay, sounds good. In entrepreneurship, there's a famous book that says the three Ps are patience, persistence, and perseverance, which I don't like since persistence and perseverance are essentially synonyms. But Moises Naim has a different set of three Ps as he surveys the world and sees the rise of the autocrat. What explains this? Polarization, populism, and post-truth. Moises Naim is the author of the best-selling The End of Power, which we're going to get to. He was an editor-in-chief of foreign policy. He was Venezuela's trade minister, executive director of the World Bank. So what I'm saying is the man has credentials. Thanks for coming on The Gist. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, Mike. You, as a Venezuelan, got a glimpse of autocracy and the recent trend of the rise of autocracy. Uh, Chavez was an early indicator. Did you know it then, or were you just too worried about what your country was going through to look around and say, oh, I see nascent signs of this elsewhere? No, it was very interesting and unnerving to see what happened in the United States, uh, because, you know, that's, uh, I, I kept saying, you know, I have seen this movie, except that it was in Spanish. Uh, but, you know, all of the, the tactics, the tricks, the strategies, the reactions, the, the demonization of the rivals, the enemies, the media, all of that. Uh, we, we saw um, uh, with Hugo Chavez. He, Hugo Chavez also was copying others. But there is a 21st century version of doing this, uh, this kind of strategy of populism, post-truth, and polarization, the three Ps. 
Um, they're very old practices. It is not like, a, you know, populism has always existed and, and uh, you know, divide and conquer is also always part of the toolkit of uh, autocrats and others and, and, and propaganda and embellishing and lying and is part also of the toolkit of many politicians. So there's not, nothing new in principle there until you start adjusting and, uh, uh, for the 21st century for the new realities uh, that, um, that are, we are witnessing. The empowering of individuals, uh, the, the, uh, the social media, of course, and the internet, uh, bloggers and, and podcasters and YouTubers and influencers, all of that uh, is, uh, has changed uh, the traditional ways in which these three Ps operated in politics. So let's take a f let's take them. And it did strike me that all of the P's at some point could be considered a virtue. They're all essentially virtues that have curdled. And if a listener is saying, well, how's polarization a virtue? Well, in in dictatorial or ancient societies where it was uh, top down and you weren't allowed to have political parties or you weren't allowed to disagree, then I suppose there was no polarization. And populism, of course, there's a good side to populism and we want to take into account the feelings of the masses. And while post-truth doesn't seem good, the idea of getting past certain gatekeepers and being skeptical of information, that is good. So that it does strike me that all of these uh, horrible pejorative um, attributes were once or could be considered, a version of them could be considered something that's positive for society. That's a very insightful observation. That's true. What I just said, that's true. And in my conversations about this, I keep saying that a, a lot of these things are like cholesterol. You know, there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Uh, in polarization, for example, um, you know, there is the... the the good uh, uh, polarization, which is what you described, these people with different ideas, interests that clash uh, uh, against each other. And then uh, they, a solution is found through votes and elections and so on, or adjustments, alliances, all that. So uh, there is a democratic polarization that respects democracy and, respect, uh, and, and respects the right uh, of the rivals to exist and, 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 and takes it as legitimate to have that. So that's good cholesterol, that's good polarization, democratic polarization. But then there is the autocratic uh, polarization in which you deny uh, the, the right of others that don't think like you to exist, to occupy a political space, to be participants in the political process. Um, and that's the, the, the bad cholesterol, that's the bad polarization. And, and you can also say that with populism, uh, they, you know, there is a bad populism that essentially tricks people and promises uh, that creates a profound division in society and nurtures the, the, the divisions and the wedge. Uh, and so that's very, very bad because it, it ends up paralyzing the country. The country cannot make decisions, cannot think long term, cannot take tough decisions that have short-term costs, all of that. Uh, but then there is also the, the positive uh, populism, which is a, a heightened sensitivity to the needs of those that have been excluded uh, and marginalized. Yeah. And so when you look at the personality of many of the autocrats in question, Duterte, Trump, uh, certainly Chavez and Maduro after them, Erdogan, they are of the type, the clever thug is what I think about them. They're not stupid, but they're not smart. They're not, they, they embrace ignorance and they make that work for them. Why does that personality trait work? 
Well, it's part of a larger personality trait uh, that is one in which they develop a relationship with their followers that uh, resembles more that of a fan with a sports club or uh, an artist. Uh, and, you know, even you derive your identity. Part of who you are is that you are a super fan of the Yankees or, or the Barca soccer club in, right. in Barcelona. So... There's always a link between the leader and the followers that is based on his charisma, his legitimacy, his effectiveness, and so on. You know, that's politics, and that's always has existed. But now we have an addition to that, which you know, fandom is the politics of fandom, in which uh, these leaders develop a relationship uh, with the followers that goes beyond politics. And it has to do with identity. It has to do with um, self-image and all, all of that. And so many of these autocrats are showmen, but not always, right? I mean, could Putin be considered? He's he's not a showman. He's not going to do these long, well, he does long press conference, but he's not going to do, quote unquote, entertaining speeches in front of rallies like Trump did, like certainly Chavez loved to do. How does Putin fit in with that? No, as you say, I, I think your description is, is, is accurate. Uh, it also has to do with, you know, he's a very clear autocrat. Uh, he's not uh, uh, doing too much to hide the fact that he rules the country. Yet even him, with all, all, all the all-powerful Putin, has to go through contortions. And, you know, he calls elections mm-hmm. that he, you know, wins with a very large margin. Why does he do that? If everybody knows that the elections are a sham, they're tricked, that you know, he, no one is going to contest him in a significant way. So why go through the motions? And the answer is uh, legitimacy. They have to grasp any possibility, any uh, even if it's minor and, and easily detectable as a fraud, uh, they need to have the legitimacy. Yeah. And, and I think the West mistook uh, democracy for liberal democracy or institutions. And if just if you have elections that, you know, in the minds of many got you two thirds of the way to democracy. And it's just not true. Let me give you an interesting factoid that I read. You know, I, I looked at the numbers. You know that democracy is in recession. There's a, a number of people living on, a, under a democratic regime has declined. Democracies are not doing well in terms of appeal and all that. Yes, yet I counted, and we have now in uh, election boom. So uh, a democracy recession and elections everywhere all the time for president, head of state, governors, state and local office, elections. As we speak, I'm sure that there is an election going on for somewhere around the world. Mm-hmm. How do you explain that democracy is, is down, is in a recession, and elections are booming? Well, first, because those elections, most of them are shams, are, are tricks. They're not real elections. Not, they're not fair and free. Uh, but also is that these, uh, the, the, the appeal, the demand for election uh, hinges in what I said before, is the need for legitimacy. So I want to get back to the idea of the clever thug, because in the book, you wrote, interestingly, about the tendency of these autocratic leaders to 
really denigrate the sophistication of some of the programs that they're in charge of. Like um, Chavez talked about going to a meeting of the state petrochemical company, which is the most important thing in Venezuela. And he talked about just falling asleep and how it was so boring. And people ate that up. And it reminded me of all the times that Trump either talked about uh, or implicitly communicated that he was so bored by the technical details. Why is this an aspect of the autocrats playbook? Because the, the autocrats need to demean, um, criticize, undermine the perception of uh, data, of information, of uh, uh, points of view that are based on evidence. And so you need to, um, to go all out against scientists, experts, uh, journalists, those that manage and use and have data, have evidence. Those are a threat to their narrative because they need to have a clean, open space in which they can say all the lies they want and not be questioned by uh, uncomfortable data and, and evidence. I just did an interview with a professor of sort of Canadian politics, and we talked about the differences between the United States and Canada. And there are so many similarities, and we really share the same, almost entirely the same language, and we share 80-something percent of the same media. And even the decisions that the two countries have made, you know, Canada is 80% fully vaxxed and the United States is about 70%. So it's not so different. And yet the countries really are different. I've been trying to get at what is the special sauce that the Canadians have that the Americans don't. And what he said is something like, we have a sense of national identity that is just almost allergic to extremism and a fringe mentality. And the United States is quite the opposite. So I don't know if that's the character of the people. I don't know if that's how government was set up. I don't know if that's something about we, uh, the United States doesn't regulate technology almost at all, and Canada does a little bit. I don't know what it is, but it has big practical differences. Go tell that to the truckers in Ottawa. I know, but they're extremely impo- unpopular in Canada, whereas those same people and, would be popular and, and, in Alabama. <laughs> of course, and, but I am just uh, mentioning because it's a provocation because uh, I, 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 I'm fascinated by that and, and saddened and worried because uh, it, it, it encapsulates all that is bad, you know, and... and uh, I was taken aback also by a recent editorial by the New York Times about the, you know, what, what happened in, 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 in Canada with the truckers and all that. And the central message of that is that we, you need to listen to these people's complaints. Well, how can one be against that? Of course, you have to listen to their complaints and find ways of integrating and dealing with their uh, problems and all that. But at the same time, you cannot, in that article, there was no mention about the rule of law. Mm-hmm. about breaking the laws you know you have to the i i understand that this is a just a, a state a way of saying i'm here i'm hurting i need help i don't like the way you're treating me and therefore i'm going to block one of your main cities i understand that this is a is, is a way of attracting attention to a, a real human tragic problem but at the, at the same time the answer cannot be don't worry about the rule of law you know, uh, you, you are breaking the laws, you're blocking the city, uh, but don't worry because you, you know, you, you're hurting. Right. Th- that is, a, I am, I'm very uneasy, uneasy with that. 
But then what do we do about Black Lives Matter protesters who were blocking things and breaking the rule of law, but the elites were arguing that much more latitude should have been given to them? That's where you need democracy. That's, that problem is solved by, uh, by democracy. You, of course, Black Lives Matter need to have the option of protesting and getting in the streets and marching, all of that, but within the rule of law. The moment you start uh, picking and choosing uh, what aspects of your constitution, of your rules, of your laws uh, apply to whom, your democracy is malfunctioning. I read your book as a survey of the autocrats of the world. I a comparative survey. I found them interesting. But of course, I couldn't not do this as an American, finding parallels to my country. And then I came across the part about Italy under Berlusconi. And there were, and it struck me because I said, ooh, I think the United States might be in this exact position. Berlusconi didn't have uninterrupted rule. There were pauses and there were center-left governments during a couple points of Berlusconi's rule. But you know what? I, I know you know what. They didn't do anything. They couldn't even figure out a way to regulate Tylenol sales and gas stations. Do you think the United States might be in such a period that we are threatened by a long rule? rule of an autocrat or this autocrat, and right now we might just be in the uh, exception to that rule, but because it's not a very robust exception, let's not expect that it will go on for too long? I am extremely worried about the next presidential election, um, because that can be a defining election, not in the sense that you have candidate A that has, a, you know, good things and bad things and candidate B, and then you make your own choice of the balance of good and bad things and you pick a candidate. That's the way we think democracy works. The problem here is that you may have a candidate that you can assess in its strengths and weaknesses, but the other candidate is undermining, is threatening your democracy. He's promising you that if elected, so he will do certain things that are clearly not legal. Uh, or that are very, very close uh, to the limits uh, that should not be trespassed. So, um, and again, I think a lot of this is happening stealthily. Um, their efforts, for example, of uh, influencing and taking control of state legislatures and the uh, logistics of, of voting, uh, I think is that is one of the, the, the things that, you know, who cares about that? Who knows about that? We have lives to live and children to raise and jobs to do. So who has the time to really understand what are the minute uh, logistical decisions that come with the transparent elections and uh, counting the votes? And so voting suppression and, 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 and manipulating the results, all of that is happening and, uh, and, and, and requires uh, very uh, careful attention that I don't think I think there is concern about that, but I think there should be alarm. Um, the, the integrity of the elections has to be placed at the top of the priorities of this nation. The last question I have is, what are you most optimistic about? Or what's the most optimistic macro trend that you've seen in the last decade or so? The instinct towards freedom. Freedom and humanity is wired for freedom. Humanity, uh, you know, of course, uh, freedom without anything to eat doesn't bode well for democracy or freedom with too much corruption and justice marginalization. But the propensity for freedom, the, in, the in instinct for freedom, I think it's very important and it uh, has been with us and will continue to be with us. 
Moises Naim is the former editor of Foreign Policy and a Venezuela's trade minister, and he was executive director of the World Bank. His new book is The Revenge of Power, How Autocrats Are Reinventing Politics for the 21st Century. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Mike. And now the spiel. The killers of Ahmad Arbery have once again been found guilty of that crime, this time in federal court, with not just their actions, but their motivations in question. Travis McMichael, William Roddy Bryan, and Gregory McMichael were all found guilty of federal hate crimes. In the eyes of the law, there was a causal relationship between their racism and the murder of a black man. The two juries which convicted Brian and the McMichaels comprised 24 members, 19 of whom were white. Though that drew objections from civil rights activists and the Arbery family, it seemed not to prove to be an obstacle in gaining the convictions. If you remember, state prosecutors avoided questions of motive in that trial. If anything, they sought to sidestep issues of race. It was a wise tactic given that the factual evidence was so strong and didn't depend on proving racial animus. For this reason, the federal trial was seen as a bigger hurdle, but that seems to have been a misplaced worry. The jury didn't deliberate long, and we all were exposed to the paucity of compelling defense arguments. For example, the defense team actually argued in closing that if Arbery were a different black man, say a 350-pound man with a mohawk, actual example used, he wouldn't have been murdered, therefore racism wasn't at play. I hope the jurors weren't kept up at night by that one, but if they were, it was only one night. They began deliberating Monday afternoon, had a verdict by Tuesday morning. Justice was done in my view, but there were some imperfections despite the correct outcome. Consider the question of if it was proper for this trial to have occurred at all. The prosecution and the defense had worked out a plea deal, which normally the judge would have approved. The defendants would plead guilty and they would be sentenced to 30 years in federal prison. But the Arbery family, including Ahmed's mother, Wanda Cooper Jones, and other family members objected to a condition of the deal that the guilty men's terms be served in federal, not state prison. Prosecutors absolutely have a responsibility to consult with the family, but they have no requirement to follow the family's desires explicitly. That said, no one would feel good about some sort of sweetheart deal that was pushed through over the objections of a grieving family, but reports were that the objection was specifically that the family wanted Brian and the McMichaels to serve their time in state prison because Georgia State Prison offers harsher conditions than federal prison. That seems less like justice and more like vengeance. While you wouldn't want to anger or further aggrieve a grieving family, if their stated rationale for rejecting a plea deal is something no prosecutor would ever dare utter aloud, then as a rule of thumb, I'd be very wary of endorsing that justification. The other imperfection, if I could use that word to apply to the impossible task of righting an unspeakable wrong, is what we as the public got to see of the trial. Federal trials are conducted without cameras. The two trials in Georgia, one in front of the cameras, one behind the scrim of federal rules, offered contrasting visions, literally contrasting visions, or one a vision and the other 
a well-reported document, I suppose, of justice. In the state trial, the thoroughness of the prosecution efforts could be seen by citizens who demanded justice. The shakiness of defense arguments couldn't be ignored by any defenders of the defendants. It was right there every day on your TV or if you T-voted whenever you wanted to watch it. YouTube, court TV, it's there right in front of your face. But in the federal trial, it was left to print reporters to offer secondhand accounts to convey the drama. As a result, it was less dramatic. But these trials, the Georgia trials, they weren't the only trials going on that convinced me that we need cameras in the courtroom when there's a societally important trial going on. There were also the Minnesota trials seeking justice over the death of George Floyd. Derek Chauvin, because it was conducted in front of the cameras of a state court, that became something like an exercise in collective justice. The federal trial, however, of Chauvin's co-officers, conducted without cameras, was far less attended to. Closing arguments in that trial took place today. Were you even aware of that? If it were televised, you would have been. And even with this war in Ukraine, it deserves a bigger slice of our attention than it's getting. Cameras don't cure or correct all misperceptions, but footage of actual testimony goes a long way to demonstrate why a proper or an improper verdict was reached. They're a civic good. When filming trials first became a possibility, video footage, you know, film, the moving image was scary. It was seen as malleable. It was seen as a less serious form of media consumption than the other dominant form, the written word. But now, actual long-form video taken by stationary cameras with angles not changing, adjudicated by judges, they're actually a more staid and responsible form of media than almost everything else we consume throughout the day. It's an anachronism for federal trials not to have cameras in the courtroom. And without cameras in the courts, we wouldn't have heard during the state trial of Brian and the McMichaels, their judge, Timothy Walmsley, at sentencing, deliver these words and thoughts about the philosophy of closure. Sentencing does not generally provide closure. I think Ms. Wanda Cooper-Jones also talked about closure. Uh, but I, I, don't, I don't find that it really does. And I think that's an unfortunate thing. Because in this case, I think many people are seeking closure. The mother, the father, the community, and maybe even parts of the nation. But closure is hard to define and is a granular concept. Today, another significant grain contributed to the overall effort. You know, not closure, but closer to a just verdict. It would have been better if all of America could have had the chance to witness, moment by moment, the course of justice taking effect. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is The Gist's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is our senior producer. Michelle Pesca is senior product purchasing agent for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu depru dupru, And thanks for listening. <laughs>